All right, it's a gift. It's a gift to have Elizabeth and Andrew guiding us in worship again. It's been too long. Uh, let's not wait so long next time. Um, and it's a gift to have Jer with us tonight teaching. Uh, four and a half years ago, um, we commissioned and sent out both Elizabeth and Jer to different journeys, different seasons, new things that were happening in their lives, new things that God was calling them into. Uh, but both of them have continued to be uh, cheerleaders and champions for Open Door, for the work of God here in this space, uh, in this uh, part of the Bay Area. Um, so it's a gift, Jared, to have you with us. So just pop up here. We're grateful for you. Uh, let me pray for you, and then I'm just going to, uh, I'll sit down. Uh, Jesus, thanks for Jared. Thank you for the way that uh, you use him and his words, um, the stories he carries with him, his own stories and the stories of others, um, to expand the imagination of people who are following you. Uh, to increase our confidence and trust and our hope um, in the possibility in a world that feels like sometimes it's crumbling or falling apart or, or filled with everything but hope. Um, you use uh, Jer in my life and in the life of Open Door to increase our hope, to imp- increase our trust. Do that tonight. Um, speak through him. Um, be present in this space, Jesus, as we know you are and will be. In your good name we pray, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, Dave. Well, my name's Jer. I live in Bend, Oregon. Uh, it's so fun to see so many old faces. Uh, that's not a crack on your age, nor mine. Uh, but, uh, and so many new faces in this room. It's really amazing to see a dream that was hatched, you know, 15-something years ago, continuing to make an impact in the lives of people in a contemporary moment. And so, uh, I bring you greetings from my family. Jackie uh, is doing exceedingly well and is mostly um, beside herself that she's not sitting right here with us. Uh, Ava is a, a middle schooler. I've got a middle schooler. Wow. Um, really something. That's a different phase of life. And then, uh, and then my boys, Anders and Soren, are seven and four. And uh, it's just life is full. And, uh, and these, little, these three little ones are figuring out what it means like all of us, I think, to follow Jesus in this moment in time. And, uh, and they also love to run the, run the mountains and ride the rivers and all the things in Bend. So come up and, and play with us uh, whenever you can. Uh, I only have, I mean, I, I only preach here now about every four and a half years. So I figured, why, why not just kind of come in and, uh, and stir the pot? Is that okay? Because there's some stuff that I've been thinking about that I want to think with y'all on. Uh, so if you have your Bible or phone, go to uh, Matthew chapter 15. And uh, listen to this. I think it's maybe one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. So let's get right after it. Hannah's. Here we go. Verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's a passage that makes Jesus sound more like a redneck bigot than the Prince of Peace. And it's such an important passage for us in a moment in time that is so racially divided, um, so fragmented by oppression and occupation 
It's a moment where there, I think life is marked more by difference and by polarity than oneness and the fact that we all are created in the image of God, interconnected, and need to learn what it means to be committed to one another's flourishing. Uh, so I want to play with the passage a little bit uh, because I think theologians and scholars and pastors have done backflips for hundreds and thousands of years to protect Jesus in this particular passage. And uh, so I want to maybe play with it a, a bit differently. I want to start, though, in Luke chapter 4. So flip over to Luke chapter 4, where we find a Jesus who's recently been baptized and has received an acknowledgement of his belovedness, right? So that means that, that means that Jesus was acknowledged as beloved before he even did anything, which means that Jesus didn't have to spend his life working his way to beloved. He was already there. Then he goes in, through this pilgrimage into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, it's, it's as though we discover a Jesus who's learning how to live as the beloved, and that means that you're going to have to tune your ear to the frequency of the Spirit, because living as the beloved means that our lives are going to be a declaration of other people's belovedness too, and that's going to be costly. It's going to take you into all sorts of weird spaces. So in the pilgrimage, Jesus is understanding what it means to live as the beloved, and then the Spirit provokes Jesus back home. It provokes Jesus to the city of Nazareth, which is kind of the place where his identity had been shaped. And in Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus in the synagogue, and someone presents to him the Isaiah scroll. And in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, who's sitting, says this. He reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because she has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. She has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus in this moment is reading messianic prophecy. Isaiah is, is saying when the Messiah is here, the Messiah is going to bring in shalom remake the world. And the way that you know that that's happening is this kind of stuff is going to happen. Deaf people will hear. People who can't walk are going to get up and dance. Uh, people who can't speak, they're going to start to speak. Uh, poor people aren't going to be poor anymore. This is going to, you're going to see this happening. And when Jesus reads this, he, he rolls up the scrolls, hands them off to the altar boy, and then he looks at the people and he says, in this moment, this passage is being fulfilled. Jesus is claiming messianic prophecy. He's the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Now, I don't know what that, you know, this is locked into our imaginations of like Sunday school and things like that. So, of course, that's what Jesus would say. But imagine if I read messianic prophecy and then got done reading and said, today, I am the fulfillment of what we just heard. I mean, you're already questioning my mental sanity, many of you who know me, but all the more so at this point, you'd be like, what in the world is this guy doing, right? That's not the response of this community of people who helped raise Jesus and change his proverbial diapers and things like that. When Jesus claims the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, according to Luke chapter 4, the people are like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is amazing. They're elated by it, right? Then Jesus continues in the passage he says, okay, you know, we've always had widows amongst us. Like the family has always had widows. Yet in the time of Elijah, isn't it interesting that when the Spirit sent Elijah to a widow to engage in some restorative activity, the Spirit didn't send Elijah to a widow within the bloodline. The Spirit sent Elijah to a widow outside of the bloodline in a place called Sidon. 
And what do you guys think about this? It's interesting that we've always had lepers among us in the family, always. But isn't it something that in the time of Elisha, when the spirit provoked Elisha into the life of a leper, it wasn't into the leper within the bloodline. It was to Naaman, the king of Syria, who represented the violent oppression of their own. He was like the enemy other. Isn't it something that the the restorative wingspan of God actually transcends the bloodline and moves to people who are far outside of it. And in that moment, a group of people who is like, wow, could this be the Messiah? Now they're saying, ah, we're going to kill this guy. In a matter of sentences, Jesus is saying, look, God's restorative wingspan goes far beyond what the conventional wisdom of the religious institution wants to tell us. And the moment he starts to do that, people are like, wait a second, that's too far. You're a threat. You're done. They try to kill him. If you go over to Mark chapter 1, Jesus then goes to the neighboring village called Capernaum, and he builds a community because this whole movement is not a solitary, isolated endeavor. It's built upon a community of people who are a community of practice and reflection. And Jesus builds this community, and he begins to live this community into a restorative movement, right? And what's so crazy is that wherever this community shows up, uh, Jesus' platform grows and popularity swells. It's unreal. And right when it's at like the, the breaking point of like amazing levels of popularity, Jesus sensed that the Spirit is provoking, provoking him onto a different space. Why? Because the restorative movement is not built upon platform and power and popularity. It's built on powerlessness and self-sacrifice. It means that we move into all of the wrong places and we are faithfully present with all of the right and wrong people, right? So where conventional wisdom says build platform and accumulate as much power as you can, Jesus goes, actually, my way is a way of downward mobility where we engage in faithful restorative practice and presence. Uh, And it's going to be costly. It's going to be self-sacrificial, right? So this is the habit, the rule of this community's life is they keep moving in and out of spaces that the the religious institution would say, if you go there, you're compromising everything. That, if you go back to Matthew chapter 15, sets the context for what's going on here. Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon. Like if you look at a map today, Tyre and Sidon located in the balmy shores of the Mediterranean, right on the northern tip of contemporary Israel. Amazing. I've been there. Great beaches. In the life and times of Jesus, this is not a vacation destination for a God-fearing Jewish people. From their point of view, this is pagan land. If you step foot on the soil of the regions of Tyre and Sidon, you're contaminating your faith, you're compromising your standing with God, and you're disqualifying yourself from the movement. Yet Matthew portrays Jesus with feet firmly planted in enemy territory, having an encounter with a Canaanite woman. Now in the Second Testament, this is the only reference of, or use of the word Canaanite. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, uses the word on purpose. Why do you think that is? He wants to conjure up the ire of the people that are listening in. Like, whoa, a Canaanite? What are they thinking about a Canaanite? Contaminant, violent, foreigner, enemy, other. How do you think this woman understood herself? Did she understand herself as a contaminant, as an enemy other, or did she maybe understand herself as an indigenous mother with a hurting kid? Perspective matters, hey? And so 
Matthew writes that Jesus has this encounter with a Canaanite woman. Jesus is in enemy territory, and the enemy, the enemy approaches Jesus. But let's, let's also keep in mind that in this moment, I think it's one of the rare moments in the scriptures where Jesus is actually the manifestation of the, of the occupier. He's the oppressor. He's the victor. He represents the group of people that has been enacting genocide against her people for hundreds of years. Interesting, hey? Like, like, this is a different dynamic in terms of what's actually happening here. The power differential for once actually places Jesus far above where this person is. And so this woman, this Canaanite woman, and I'll now refer to her as an indigenous mother. She, she has a hurting daughter. She comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But she says it too loudly. Right? And what I've noticed, I think, just in the last decade of, of my life's work is that when you have oppressed, occupied, and, and impacted communities, and if they sense that they're encountering somebody who can alter their reality, they will do whatever it takes, going to whatever extreme measure they need to go to, to get the attention of anybody who could change their reality. So was she a bit too loud? Probably probably came from the fact that she had been silenced by everybody her entire life. Now, what I've also noticed is that we in the dominant culture context, when the, when the impacted communities get too loud, you know what we say? Quiet down a little bit. Do you know, if you could like change your message just a touch, it maybe be more palatable for us. Maybe we would help if you could kind of tailor make your message a little bit more thoughtfully, right? They're done being thoughtful. They've been, thought, they've been thoughtful for millennia. Right? They're still being crushed. And in this moment, she's looking at somebody who could potentially alter her reality. Right? So she comes up to Jesus, expresses this super, super in a loud way. And Jesus' response in the moment is silence. Now, I think there's something going on here. I think there is a spiritual truth colliding with a social reality. The spiritual truth is God is radically pro-human. The spiritual truth is that there is no bloodline, there is no, there is no category of human being, there is no person that is outside of the loving affection of God. God is radically pro-human. That's the spiritual truth. The social reality is people like her exist outside of the reach of God's restorative wingspan. Spiritual truth, God is for this woman. Social reality, she is not worth our time. That is a collision. And that's not just a collision in this passage. If you're paying attention at all to the news in the world today, it is a collision that happens every single moment of every single day. This group is dehumanized. This group is less than. This is who you need to position yourself with. This is who you need to avoid. God is radically pro-human. And this woman is outside of God's restorative reach. So like the collision of this creates silence, which I think is fascinating. Because what I'm paying attention to in this world is when a spiritual reality collides with a social reality, we like to fill that space with sound and solutions and arguments and opinions that are often based not on the life and teachings of Jesus, but more like our upbringing or our pundits talking points or whatever it is. In this moment, there is a collision. It's disruptive for Jesus, and he chooses silence. Why? Because if you're going to live life as the beloved, you need to tune your ear to the frequency of the Spirit, and Jesus needed a minute to understand perhaps what it was that the Spirit was saying to him. Now, 
take a look at the passage and pay attention to who is not silent. The Jesus community is not silent. Jesus, get rid of this woman. Get, she is way too loud. Right? So like, she's got, she, the indigenous mother is experiencing affliction, oppression because of her daughter. Jesus is quiet, trying to tune his ear to the voice of the Spirit. And the church says, we got to get rid of this person. She's inconvenient. She's destabilizing my sense of tranquility, perhaps, or perhaps the Jesus community in this moment is actually voicing nationalism and elitism and their ingrained racism. They don't want to be there. They certainly don't want to be encountering a Canaanite woman. This is so far below them. That, so it's it, like they know we're risking something here. We could be disqualified from the family. So Jesus, get rid of them, or of her. What we don't know is exactly what fueled their restlessness, but we do know is that their sense of comfort was more important to them than her affliction. How about that for us, church? In a world that has been destabilized so much by violence, by poverty, People not only on the other side of the world, but people in our own cities are having their water turned off. People who are fleeing violence that we have been a part of are coming to our southern border and being turned away. Right? Like, this stuff is happening real time. And my question for us is, and this is my question for everybody from coast to coast right now, is, is our sense of comfort and our, maybe our idea of the American dream more important to us than the affliction of people who are legitimately suffering? That's what we see voiced here. I hear us, generally speaking, I hear us in this moment. So now two things have been leveled at Jesus. Number, like, are we getting controversial yet? Because I can keep pushing because this is what I do, right? Two things have been leveled at Jesus. One, the indigenous mother feels this sense of oppression because her daughter, her daughter suffers. I would do anything that I need to do to make sure that my child is no longer suffering. So would you, right? Now he's got the Jesus community he's got to deal with because they're kind of Nancy pantsing around their sense of comfort and like this is a disruption to our, you know, vacation or whatever this is, Jesus, right? Here's where Jesus begins to speak. And what I find interesting is that when Jesus speaks up, he doesn't address anybody. So I know that Matthew predates Shakespeare, but I think Shakespeare helps us understand what's going on here. You know what a soliloquy is? Shakespeare was so good at this. A soliloquy is, is this moment like when something is going on, Shakespeare would invite a character to like go to the other side of the stage and there would be like a pool of light that would appear. And the character would step into the pool of light and begin to wonder about what's happening over here. That's, what's, that, that's what Matthew is wanting to actually portray here, is that in this moment, there are these two crises happening, the woman's, the Jesus community, and it's as though Jesus walks into the pool of light and he begins to wonder about his understanding of mission. It's like you can begin to hear Jesus saying, like, I thought that, I thought the best thing I could do for Gentiles later is focus on Israel now. Like, if I, if I heal this woman, will that like prematurely accelerate the restorative movement into the life of the Gentiles? Yet, yet here's an actual human being who is hurting in front of me. So this is a soliloquy that we get to hear inside of what's going, what's going on for Jesus. 
right? So now Matthew actually portrays three crises, indigenous mother, Jesus community, and now Jesus has a bit of an internal crisis. Maybe less certain on his understanding of mission and the imminence of it than he was before this encounter, right? The woman will not stop. So she perceives, number one, Jesus has come to her neighborhood. Number two, Jesus has not said no. Number three, Jesus has not gotten rid of her. So she takes a step closer to Jesus and she says, Jesus, look, I don't understand all this stuff you're talking about with regard to mission and stuff, but I don't think that you think as poorly of me as your people do. Could we let that sink in just for a moment? The indigenous, impacted, occupied, suffering woman says to Jesus, I don't think that you think as poorly of me as your people do. Soliloquy number two, this one brimming with racism. Brimming with racism, right? So in soliloquy, or the second one, the pool of light reappears, Jesus enters into it, and this is the moment where Jesus says maybe one of the most controversial things he says that's located in the Gospels, right? He, ref- he refers to her and her people as dogs, actually in the ancient text using the female form of the noun, which doesn't translate well in moments like these, Right? <laughs> So this is intense. The question is, is Jesus saying that to her? Is Jesus calling her a dog? Or do we get to see again some of the inner workings of Jesus? And in this moment, let me suggest that Jesus might actually be surfacing the racism that exists within the life of the Jesus community. Because racism exists within the life of the Jesus community because we're human beings who have been raised within a system that has been designed to benefit us at the expense of others. Racism exists within the Jesus community and prejudice and bias. And there's this nationalism like Israel. It's so much better than people from these other places, right? There's this nationalism, this exceptionalism, this elitism that Jesus is surfacing in this kind of verbiage, right? And, uh, and so let me pause here because I think, like I said earlier, that pastors and scholars and theologians and everybody, we have been doing like a Cirque du Soleil show for, for thousands of years to protect Jesus from this. It's like we've worked so hard to hover Jesus above the systems and structures that actually totally populated his day, influenced his, his life. If we think about the fact that Jesus grew up apprenticing his father, who was a carpenter, which didn't mean he built wooden structures, probably meant that he built stone structures. If the timing lines up, it's very likely that Jesus would have spent a large portion of his childhood assisting his dad in the rebuilding of a village called Sepphoris, which is right next to Nazareth. Sepphoris was a city that got a little too hot and bothered. They started to rebel against the Roman Empire, and eventually Rome just came in and completely crushed the city. Historians suggest that not only did they crush the city, but they, they, uh, they captured 300 men, women, and children, dipped them in tar, crucified them, and lit them on fire such that the sky was light as day for over a week. What do you think was the content of the conversations if you had a bunch of Jewish masons rebuilding that city? What are they talking about? With what kind of regard do they hold Gentiles? Who are the butt of their jokes? If nothing else, just as a means of like survival or like dealing with the absurdity of having to rebuild that city in the midst of that kind of massacre. 
So to suggest that Jesus wasn't somehow impacted by the racism and the prejudice and the nationalism and the constructions of other and enemy of his time throughout his child and throughout his upbringing seems a bit irresponsible to me. So is it possible that in this encounter in Matthew chapter 15, the Spirit actually provoked Jesus to the edges of his own margins of comfort to transform Jesus? Now, some of us in the room would say, whoa, 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 Jesus needing to be transformed? Like, wait, I thought he was like fully God and stuff. Sure. And in Luke chapter 2, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Is there ever a moment when Jesus stopped growing in wisdom and, and favor and, or stature and favor with God and men? Is there ever a moment in our human journey where we're not actively potentially involved in the, in the adventure of transformation? Could it be that when Jesus offers this soliloquy brimming with racism, he's actually surfacing his own bias? Now, the woman is still unrelenting. She sees that Jesus is in a crisis. And so again, she comes toward him, and like I, I look at this woman, and, and I know her. I know her in 50 different places around the world. I know why she's undeterred. Because a woman like this has been used to Jewish men referring to her and people like her as dogs her entire life. It hurts, but it doesn't faze her. She's got tough skin. She's got resilience. She's got a bunch of resolve. You can throw a name at her and it's going to bounce right off of her. She refuses to allow the racism of the Jesus community to deter her. And she refuses to believe that Jesus actually thinks poorly of her. So she takes Jesus' own words and turns the tables on him. She said, yeah, even if we're dogs, we're in the same room sharing the same meal. We're together in this. We're interconnected. We're a gigantic family, and we're eating the same meal together. In that moment, the Jewish rabbi is bested by the indigenous mother. Jesus is bested by her. That's where we see a transformation happen in the life of Jesus because Matthew writes that in that moment, he, Jesus, answered her. We're no longer in soliloquy mode. Jesus is now present with this woman speaking directly to her and saying, your faith, this is courageous, this is remarkable. And so Jesus' transformation leads to her liberation and, and the restoration of her daughter. We see real-time transformation. Now, I'm, I'm in this place in my life where I'm recognizing that if I'm going to demand my ongoing transformation, I had better figure out how to find myself at the margins of my own space of comfort and safety. The places that are unusual and uncomfortable, and dare I even say dangerous, that's the place where transformation is occurring, especially, I would argue, for dominant culture folk. That if the Spirit provoked Jesus to the margins of his space of comfort for the sake of his transformation, then it's likely that the Spirit is, is propelling all of us beyond our incubators of safety into real life, into spaces where we have to utterly depend on the Spirit to transform us to make it, to survive. I want to um, show you a couple of pictures, and I, I want to I illustrate how this is taking place in my life 
And I'm going sh- to introduce you to some of my friends, not in an effort to tokenize my friends of color or my friends from the margins, but to actually demonstrate that when you move into the margins and you listen longer than feels comfortable and allow yourself to be changed by what you've heard, you actually begin to discover a more authentic <laughs> Jesus and a faith that's actually worth our lives. So l- let me flip through some of these pictures. This was supposed to illustrate the Canaanite woman, but now we're beyond that. I don't actually know her. Uh, That was just an illustration. Next picture is my buddy Ben. He lives in Oakland. Some of you have met him and know him. Ben is helping me understand that Jesus looked nothing like me. Jesus, he's, he's decentering my, my male, white male-centric imagination on Jesus. He's the one that helps me understand that Jesus was a, was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who lived on the underside of empire, who transformed the world not through accumulation of power, but f- through faithful presence and self-sacrifice. Next slide. It's my friend Dominique Gilliard. Dominique um, written an incredible book called Rethinking Incarceration. Please get it. Um, Such an important book. Dominique is helping me understand that Jesus really, really understands broken criminal justice systems. Jesus felt the whip-tearing impact of broken systems and died as a a victim of capital punishment to a light-skinned empire. Jesus gets it. Next slide. This is Dee McIntosh. She's a friend of mine from Minnesota. She's helping me understand that Jesus, Jesus understood what lament was because he was proximate to the pain. Lament is not a common, it doesn't tend to be a common experience, generally speaking, for dominant culture folk. I think it's part of the reason why our music is so happy. And you listen to communities of color. When I, when I worship with my friends in, in Mexico, when I worship with my friends in Palestine, their music is not happy because their reality is occupied and oppressed, yet it's hopeful. Just because it's not happy doesn't mean that it's not hopeful. It is hopeful. But they understand lament because they're proximate to pain differently than we are. Next slide. This is my buddy Milad. Milad is a Palestinian refugee. He's helping me understand, especially in the era of the refugee crisis and the fact that we can't, we choose not to do anything about it. He helps me recognize that Jesus understands what it means to be an Arab refugee who is fully dependent on the benevolence of a larger power. Next slide. This is my friend Liel. Liel helps me understand that nationalism is not the same thing as Christian faithfulness. And he's a Jew. He's an Israeli Jew. He pushes me to make sure that my faith is centered on the right object. That my allegiance is not to a banner with stars and stripes, but to a cross-wearing God. And he's an Israeli Jew. Next slide. This is my friend Alejandra. She's one of my Mexican teammates. She's helping me understand um, that, uh, that, that Jesus, Jesus lived with borderless hospitality, seen as irresponsible, deemed by the political and religious institutions as outlandish, yet Jesus lived with borderless hospitality, and he lived a liturgy of a shared table, and it began to change the world. Next slide. This is my friend Sammy Awad. He's a Palestinian Christian. He, he's such a proponent for us taking Jesus serious. When Jesus says things like, love your neighbor, and then goes beyond that to say, love your enemy, Sammy's helping me understand that in order to love my enemy, I must first understand my enemy. And if I'm going to understand my enemy, then I have to actually battle against fear so that I can get close to them. And when I get close to my enemy, I find out that they're actually my sister and brother. Our, our flourishing is interconnected. Next slide. 
As my friend Jim Bear Jacobs, he's a Mohican pastor from, um, from Minneapolis. He, the other, not, not too long ago, he brought this book to me and he said, hey, Jerry, you know what this is? I go, that's the Bible, Jim Bear. And he goes, this is an indigenous manual. This is a book written by an occupied, oppressed indigenous people about what it means to actually live faithful to God. He said, you want to know what people like you have done with this book for hundreds and hundreds of years in this country? I go, what? And he said, you have dared bring this book to the margins to tell us what it says. He goes, you want to know what you should be doing with this book? You should be coming to the margins and saying, will you please help us understand what this book means? Next slide. Maha El Ganadi, she's a local Muslim uh, in, in San Jose, a Muslim, national Muslim um, faith leader and organizer. She's helping me understand that the, the essence of the monotheistic traditions, especially the Abrahamics, the Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, the essence of these, these three traditions is love of neighbor and that we would declare holy war on the darkest parts of ourselves. Interesting, hey? That's jihad. Declare holy war on the darkest part of you. If we all did that, I wonder what the world would look like. Next slide. It's my friend Gerwin. He's sick, which means not, doesn't mean he's unhealthy. He's sick, as in that's his faith tradition. He's helping me understand that we have got to get to a place across boundaries and borders to recognize that all of us are human beings who are marked in the image of the divine. All of us. The turban that they wear, the turban is actually a declaration of justice and interconnectedness. It's amazing once you actually hear the story of why the Sikh tradition wears the turban. Next slide. Uh, this is my Muslim friend, uh, Mahmoud. Um, Mahmoud looks at me from time to time and he says, will you stop Will you stop compromising your Christian faithfulness? We don't need you to compromise your Christian faithfulness to like be relevant with us. We need you to live your Christian tradition with more conviction and compassion. They're not trying to convert or conquer us. They're inviting us to live out the essence of our faith with more compassion. They love the idea of building a more beautiful world together with us. Next slide. My friend Samuel Perez, he's one of my Mexican teammates. He's helping me recognize that the God we see in Jesus did not offer charity. That, that the God we see in Jesus offered solidarity because that's what we need. Right? So these people, these friends, in relationship, in the practice of faithful presence that has taken me beyond some of my own boundaries of comfort and all the things, they're actually helping me discover a Jesus that's more authentic and a faith that's worth my life. And friends, if that's the space where transformation is occurring, then what does it take for all of us to take another step out of the incubator of safety and into real relationship with people who can teach us how to follow Jesus more clearly? That's God's word for us tonight.